So if you can find Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, that would be great. Six years ago, uh, we moved my daughter Abigail to Minnesota to go to college. Godforsaken, cold, why would anybody live there? Minnesota. She'll never come back, best I can tell. She married a Minnesotan, so for the rest of my life, not because I was a bad father, I think, I'm going to be forced to visit her in multiple times a year. And just really, let me say again, a godforsaken cold place like Minnesota. But I digress. Moved her six years ago. A few years before that, we'd moved my son to college. Best I remember, it took the back of my truck and then he drove his car and that was that. To move my daughter to college required something of a convoy. I mean, uh, multiple cars filled from floor to ceiling. I was driving lead. Uh, I was in Julie's car at the time. It was literally packed from the very floor to the ceiling with girl stuff. I could not, I could not see out the rearview mirror at all. And so I was completely dependent on my side view mirrors. That's just the way it was, completely dependent on my side view mirrors. But I'm a great driver. So I'm barreling up Interstate 35. Uh, within the legal limit that you'll get stopped, I think. And um, about, about uh, I don't know, probably about uh, 70 miles south of Des Moines, I need to scoot over because someone is not going as fast as I'd like them to. And I put on my blinker, look in my rearview mirror, come over, and you know what happened. I heard screeching tires, blaring horn. There had been somebody else barreling up behind me. I couldn't see him in my rearview mirrors. And if I did not jerk back, I was going to run them off the road. I got back very quickly. They drove by me. They saluted my good reflexes. At least that's what I think they were doing. <laughs> but it was six years ago. I could take you to the spot on Interstate 35 when it happened. It's burned into my memory. Because I was absolutely convinced that I was operating safely. I was absolutely convinced that everything was okay, but there was someone in my blind spot. Blind spots exist in more places than the highway. Literature on leadership, for instance, talk about blind spots, those personal traits or aspects that we don't even know about that may limit the way we act, react, behave, or believe, and therefore limit our effectiveness as leaders. Every leader has blind spots. Then there are relational blind spots, patterns of behavior that are learned over time that go unnoticed in our interactions with others, but are the cause of relationship dysfunction that so many people experience. But the most dangerous of all blind spots are spiritual blind spots, and that's what we're going to talk about today. What are spiritual blind spots? They are those areas of our lives that often go unchecked or unattended through which the enemy can wreck us. We all have them. But there is a kind of blind spot that is pervasive in churches today that is to of particularly deadly consequence. And we see this blind spot on display in the letter to the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2. Now, Pergamum is one of those cities in the ancient world that is incredibly important, but probably you've never heard of it. It was a wealthy cultural center. It was likely still at this time the capital of the Roman province of uh, Asia, which encompassed all for us modern-day Turkey. And it was home to a university that hosted what was 
generally believed to be the largest library in the ancient world, having over 200,000 volumes. Perhaps as a result of it being an academic center, the process of turning animal skins into parchment was created there. And in fact, in John's language, the word for parchment is pergamena, owing to the place where it was born. So it was wealthy, it was educated, it was refined. I mean, it was not unlike Johnson County, right? Such a great place to live. But it was a sorry place to be a Jesus follower. It was, as we've already seen in so many of these other cities, and which we'll see as we continue, a center for a particular brand of pagan worship, emperor worship. It was the first city in the province, actually, to have a temple dedicated to the Emperor Augustus and the Roman goddess of Rome, which meant that there was an unholy marriage between citizenship and religion that would put a follower of Jesus at extreme risk. But the flower of the gospel will bloom on the most barren of ground, and in this seemingly impossible cultural situation, A church had come to be. And Jesus speaks to it, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, I want you to remember that Jesus always announces himself to each of these churches uniquely in ways that speak to their particular situation. And given how difficult a situation the Christians at Pergamum found themselves to be in, one would think that Jesus would present himself to them as a comforter, but he doesn't do that. He instead presents himself to this church in a difficult cultural situation as its judge. The image of a two-edged sword would have been unmistakable to them because in a city like this, the Roman proconsul exercised the power of his sword to persecute Christians, and they had felt that persecution in very intense ways. But Jesus is reminding them, I am the one who holds ultimate power. I am the ultimate judge over all of you. But before he gets to the reason that he has to present himself as judge, he does what he does with a lot of churches, if he can. He commends them for something. Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. What are we being told here? We're being told that they had managed to resist that emperor worship. There is some debate as to what the throne of Satan represents, but the general consensus is that it's a reference to the worship taking place in the temple to Augustus. This is underscored by the phrase, you have held fast to my name. What does it mean? It means that they had not swapped the confession that is at the core of the Christian faith. Jesus is Lord with Caesar is Lord. In fact, We're told that one of their number had actually been martyred for that refusal to budge. Do you know the word witness in John's language is the word martyr? Antipas was known for having given his life rather than give up this confession that Jesus is Lord. And here's the amazing thing. The only thing we know about this guy is here. How would you like that to be your testimony? That you would literally die rather than give up your profession of faith. 
in Jesus Christ. So this church had withstood some heavy opposition, and yet Jesus is coming to it as judge. And here's why the judge must speak. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, obviously, there's stuff there that on first glance we're not going to be able to make heads or tails of, and so we need to slow down and get our compass bearing so we can see clearly the kind of warning that Jesus is issuing to this church. First, he says, you have some in your midst who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam was essentially a prophet for hire, a prophet per prophet, actually, if you want to think about it that way. Um, And we learn about him in the Old Testament book of Numbers. The, The king of Moab, a man named Balak, hired Balaam to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel as they were passing through that region so that he could uh, use his armies to defeat Israel. Well, God, knowing this, scared the stuffing out of uh, Balaam. In fact, uh, you can read about that again in the book of Numbers, a talking donkey and an angel and all of that. That would tend to get one's attention. It got Balaam's attention. So he wouldn't pronounce the curse But he did advise King Balak that if he could induce the Israelites to worship God's uh, idols that were not the one true God, that God's blessing from them would be removed and they could be defeated. So that's what Jesus is saying here. He isn't speaking really of, of a specific doctrine that is being taught as to the effect of some falseness that had crept into the church. He's talking about how the church at Pergamum had acclimated themselves to the pagan culture around them. Denying Jesus by saying Caesar is Lord was a bridge too far for them. They weren't going to give that up. They'd rather die than give that up. But but perhaps they had decided that they could blend in, maybe not call so much attention to themselves by engaging in these practices of meat sacrifice to idols and engaging in sexual immorality. Now, uh, that seems to be an odd mix of transgressions until you realize that these aren't meant to be understood as two distinct things, but instead are a reference to participation to the worship uh, ceremonies of the pagan deities in the town. They involved religious feast, which involved the, the sacrifice of animals and the eating of those foods, and then also, depending upon the deity being worshipped, included engaging in sexual practices with temple prostitutes. And you say, well, my goodness, how, how can you reconcile that? Never give up the human mind's ability to reconcile anything it wants to do. Don't ever do that. We can rationalize anything. And a rationalization had taken place for these people. And that rationalization can be summed up in one word, the word economics. In order to work in a trade uh, in this world required that you be a part of a guild. And each trade guild had a patron god whose worship included feasts complete with sacrifices and drunkenness and sexual immorality. These people would give their lives for refusing to budge on the truth that Jesus is Lord, but they had to eat, right? I mean, they, they, had, to, they had to make a living, right? They, they had to 
to, to meet the needs of their family, right? And so they rationalized. The other teaching mentioned here is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And here's what that means. I want you to write this down. You ready? We have no idea. We have absolutely no idea. that This teaching is only mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's never explained, and so all we can do is guess. I mean, I can make something up for you if you want me to, and as long as you don't check it out online, which, you know, the everything's on the Internet, it's true. As long as you don't check it out online, you know, we're all good. But really, honestly, we don't know what it was. Probably, in some way, it was similar to the teaching of Balaam. It was an accommodation to the paganism around them. We just don't know. The bottom line is that in spite of their resistance to ultimate denial of Jesus, the church in Pergamum had accommodated themselves to the culture around them, and they were in far greater danger of judgment from Jesus than they ever were the Roman proconsul. So Jesus says this in verse 16, therefore repent, if not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is saying, if you don't repent of this accommodation, I'm going to come and go to war against you. Probably you ought to pick your battles wisely, I would think. I'm going to go to war against you. And then here's why, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give him some hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus says that if you make the choice to war with Jesus against a fallen world, to redeem it, rather than being warred against by Jesus because you've accommodated to it, you will receive an eternal blessing. That is what the idea of hidden manna, that is what the idea of a, a stone with a new name written on it represents. We don't know the specifics of everything that's being referenced there, but we do get from context that Jesus is saying there is an eternal blessing from not accommodating yourself. So the church at Pergamum had nailed the basics of the faith. They would not give any of that up, the, the, the core truths of their faith. They wouldn't give it up, but they'd become sloppy on the edges, and as such, they were in danger of Christ's judgment. They developed a blind spot. I have them. You have them. Our church has them, and we risk war with Jesus if we leave them unattended. Do I have everyone's attention? We need to do something about this. So what do we do? First, using this passage of Scripture as our example and Christ's words as our guide, we must remain vigilant against compromise. We must remain vigilant against compromise, and that's a bigger deal than what you're thinking, and I'm about to share why? Remember, the church at Pergamum had gotten the big things right. They had orthodox theology in the sense that they could affirm the fundamentals of the Christian faith. They were willing to die rather than to deny that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, but they had compromised in other ways. They had rationalized it for sure, convinced themselves that we can't exist unless we accommodate ourselves in some way. I mean, Jesus will forgive me. It may not be the best thing, but we've just got to do it in order to be able to survive. But in making that choice, 
they were risking war with Jesus. The same thing can happen to us as a church. And one of my jobs as pastor and one of the jobs of our elders is to help our church remain vigilant by pointing out the dangers that are creeping up on us in our blind spot. I know that one of the whispers that goes about the church from time to time is that, you know, Derek always seems like he's picking on conservatives. He never picks on liberals. And uh, while always and never are awfully big words, guess what? You are right. You ain't wrong. But it's not, as some people think, because I'm a liberal. Theologically, I'm conservative by any measure, and politically, I probably vote on most things like most of you. So here's why some of you think I'm always picking on conservatives. A church that is like ours, that is right of center on issues of theology and issues of culture and issues of politics, is conditioned to be on constant high alert for the threat of secularization from the left. Let me say clearly and unequivocally, the secular left is godless. From the left, we see godless religion that worships the state, seeing the state as the answer to the world's problem. A godless morality that redefines what is right and wrong, and a godless anthropology that makes individual rights sacrosanct. The secular left is godless. But there is no secular right, right? See, that's the blind spot. The secular right will speak freely of God, but only in generic and meaningless ways. Because it's a Christless God. And because Christ is the image of the invisible God, a Christless God is still godless. And so from the right, we see a Christless God that worships the state, seeing the state as the answer to the world's problems in our politics. A Christless morality redefines what is right and wrong by choosing what we will ignore. And a godless anthropology exists there that makes individual rights sacrosanct. What I'm trying to say is that we face danger from secularization on both sides. It's just packaged a little differently. And most of the time, people like us are blind to the right flank. Now, I could choose to warn you all the time about the danger on the secular and theological left. In fact, churches like ours have existed for decades by preachers like me railing against that kind of threat. But here's the quickest way I know to build self-righteousness in a congregation. It's for the preacher to constantly talk about other people's sins. We never have to deal with our own. So I spend a lot of time warning you of the danger that exists on the secular and theological right. It's not because I hate conservatives. It's because I love my conservative church. And I have to give an account for this conservative church, along with our other elders, to the great shepherd for my stewardship of your protection. And we have blind spots as conservatives that we need to be made aware of. And if we're not hearing about them here, we quite literally will never, ever hear of them. Accommodation to secular culture can happen from the right and it can happen from the left. And we can dodge the big things like surrendering our theological fundamentals but still deny Jesus by essentially claiming Caesar is Lord and putting so much hope in political solutions for our country's struggles. 
And we can dodge accommodation of our biblical values to secularism in the name of pragmatism that we see on the left, but we are blind to the accommodation of our biblical values in the name of pragmatism on the secular right. When you are only aware of or you are only choosing to listen to the dangers on one side of the cultural pasture, you will never be aware of the wolf sitting in the grass right next to you. And you might never see that Jesus is about to go to war against you. C.S. Lewis put the dangers that I'm speaking of here eloquently in the book Mere Christianity. He said, the devil always sends errors to the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. Let me read that again. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. Listen, church family, that I love. We have to, if we're going to live in this world, remain constantly vigilant. Our Bedrock convictions need to be rooted in Scripture. And we need to be as familiar with Scripture as we can possibly be so that we can hear the error, so that our blind spots are reduced, so we can see the danger that is coming up from behind us. And if a church like ours that holds to the truth of Scripture and holds to the sufficiency of Christ and holds to the primacy of the gospel loses our way, who is going to share the good news with them? No one, and we'll be wrecked on the side of the road, victims of a culture that we think we've not been affected by. So we need to make certain that we constantly remain vigilant for compromise. Then close your blind spot by embracing your provision in Christ. Pastor Micah, which is still just super weird for me to say, um, and I were talking last month as we began to prepare these messages. A group of us get together every Monday afternoon, and we study the text together and wrestle with the text together. It just makes us all better. And he made the point that it seemed like a lot of our last points on these messages were starting to sound the same. But then we agreed that that's because Jesus essentially makes the same last point in all seven letters. Stand firm in the hope that you have in me. Jesus promises an eternal blessing to the faithful. In the case of the church at Pergamum, it was an eternal blessing for not yielding to compromise to culture. So how might this work? Well, compromise usually happens because of fear. We convince ourselves that our fear is of persecution is a kind of humble brag, but really compromise in our country with our freedoms is born under the fear of not fitting in or of losing power or of losing prestige. It just seems like so much to give up and so we little by little deviate from the mean. But if you live with the truth that you will be alive 500 million years from now, I mean stop and think about that. 
You will be alive if you've given your life to Jesus 500 million years from now. 10 billion years from now, you will be alive if you've given your life to Jesus. Now, and I know I'm talking illogical nonsense because eternity by definition is an absence of time, but roll with me for just a minute. You will be alive 1 trillion years from now if you've given your life to Jesus. So, so what if you don't fit in? You will be alive 10 quadrillion. Is that a thing? Years from now. So, so, so what? If you experience some hardship for the name of Jesus in the world today, you were made for Him. Your purpose in life is to is to love Him and glorify Him forever. Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is where you find your purpose. In Jesus, in Jesus alone, in Christ alone, which we sang boisterously before I began to preach. That's where we really find our significance. They're not just pretty words in a song. That's where we find our purpose. We don't find it in our politics or a network of friends or a church or even our family. So embrace that. Embrace the amazing thing that you have in Jesus fully, completely, forever. Because if you have him, you and I quite literally don't need anything else. Everybody has blind spots. Preachers have blind spots. Congregations have blind spots. Everybody's got blind spots. So let's remain vigilant for compromise. That can come from any direction, folks. And let's embrace what we have in Jesus. Join me in prayer, please.